right, Genesis chapter 38 here this morning. We've been working our way through, through Genesis now for, for quite a while, chapter by chapter. Uh, and I'm sure as, you've, as we've gone through and as you've gone through, uh, we, we've seen uh, good, bad, and ugly, have we not? Uh, we see some chapters where we think, man, this is, this is bad. Uh, we see some chapters where this is really good. And, and I have to be honest with you, this is one of the chapters that is uh, that's kind of bad. Um, this is one of those chapters that I, I think you could arguably um, uh, submit it for being one of the most interesting chapters of all of Scripture. Yeah, right? there, there's a lot that is going on here. Uh, and most of it is not good, and some of it's frankly just a little bit confusing. And, and I hope this morning we're able to, to clear up some of those things. Uh, there's a lot of good that's going on in this chapter. Uh, it's just hard to see sometimes exactly uh, what is taking place here. Uh, this, is a, this is an interesting chapter to, to teach just because there's just a lot of drama in it. Uh, we see this running, we, all the individuals that are running around, uh, the, the conversations that are taking place behind the scenes, it, it just becomes a, an interesting chapter. But uh, we will see the, the grace of God coming out in this chapter, much as we have seen in many of the chapters uh, as we've looked at at Genesis as we've gone through. Uh, before we get, uh, get too involved in this, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll take a look at what's going on. Father, we thank you for your grace to us, uh, and Father, we thank you for the, the numbers of ways in which it, it becomes evident to us. Uh, ben was teaching this morning in Sunday school that the gifts of God that we, that we receive, they don't just come on, on, on one day. Uh, they, they are sprinkled throughout the year. They, they come in, in, in a number of different ways throughout the year. Uh, and Father, this is a, a, an excellent example of that. Father, the grace that you are distributing to, to us, uh, the grace that you are distributing to the individuals in this story, uh, Father, it is coming in, in a number of different ways. And, and as we study that, as we think about that, it, it makes us all the more grateful, and it puts us in, in a position of awe, uh, that you are able to work through not only good situations, not only good individuals, uh, but you are able to work through dark individuals. Uh, you are able to work through, through dark situations, uh, through evil individuals, uh, Father, to accomplish your will and, and to bring about exactly what you want to do. And Father, that causes us to worship you. That causes us to be in awe of your power. It causes us to be in awe of your wisdom. And it causes us to be grateful for the redemption that is ultimately uh, taking place in Christ that this passage is, is pointing us to. And so, Father, I pray this morning, as we look at the, the drama, as we look at the sin, uh, as we look at some of the, the things that are happening that seem a little bit confusing, uh, Father, I pray that you help our minds focus on what is most important, uh, focus on you and, and on the grace that is being displayed here this morning. So give us grace for this. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of word. And Father, I pray that you are glorified and, and we are edified this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, this morning, as we, as we look at Genesis chapter 38, I'm going to break this up into, into three different sections. Uh, we'll look at verses 1 through 11, and that'll be largely Judah's character here this morning. Uh, and that's not good, uh, right, to start off with. Uh, we'll take then a few minutes uh, to look at, at Tamar's character in verses 12 through 23. And then the rest of the chapter will be focused on redemption, right? Because that is where this passage is leading us to. Uh, the passage even that, that Brian, uh, I had Brian read us, uh, for us this morning, uh, it, is, it is to help guide our minds in that direction because there's a, there's a lot of similarities between what's going on with Ruth and what's going on with, with Judah and Tamar here this morning. Uh, but let's take a look here in verse, uh, chapter 38. Let's take a look at verse 1. Let me read a few verses here to, to get us started. Chapter 38, verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore again another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then the Lord said, then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for her brother, for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Interesting things, aren't they? A lot of, a lot of things that are, that are going on here in, this, in these few verses. 
Uh, we've already g- been given a, a glimpse of Judah back in chapter 37 as we started looking at the life of Joseph and, and th- thinking more about uh, Judah's, uh, Jacob's sons rather than looking at, at Jacob and Esau as we have for most of the book of Genesis so far in, in, in the pre- previous verses there. As we looked at Judah, uh, we saw that Judah is, is not a particularly uh, savory individual. Right? As the brothers are looking at Joseph and they see Joseph coming from a distance, probably because of this, this coat of colors that he has, this multicolored tunic, whatever, however you want to translate that, this distinctive garment that, that Joseph is wearing, as they see him coming, they decide, well, we're going to kill him. Right? This is one of the first glimpses we get into the lives of these boys. Right? They, are, they are bloodthirsty. Uh, it's not simply enough that Simeon and Levi are willing to kill an entire town, uh, but these boys in general are bloodthirsty, and that includes inside their own family. Reuben tries to, to intervene in the situation and say, no, no, don't kill him. He's, he's probably either trying to win back favor from his father or just, just trying to be the adult in the room at, at this particular situation. He says, no, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. And Reuben thinks to himself, well, I'll come back and I'll get Joseph back out of there and we'll, get, we'll rescue the situation from, from devolving anymore. After Reuben appears to have stepped away uh, and, and the sons see that there's this, this caravan coming of, of Ishmaelites and Midianites, it's Judah who speaks up and says to his brothers, we don't have to kill him, right? There's no profit if we kill him. We won't, we won't get anything out of it. He's just, he's just dead. That's the only thing that happens. But if we were to sell him, then we'd get something out of it and we get rid of Joseph at the exact same time. And this is the first time that we've seen Judah kind of step to the forefront. We've known about Reuben, we've known about Simeon, we've known about Levi, and we, we kind of get the sense in which they're getting pushed off the scene as, as the future leader of this family one by one. And now we're down to Judah. And if we were simply to go off chapter 37 alone, we would have to say Judah's probably about to lose it also. Right? Judah, Judah is no different than the rest of these boys. He is, he is just as bloodthirsty. He is just as cold. He is just as callous to, to whatever his father may think about it, to the, to the pleas of his own brother. Uh, this man is, is not a good man. Right? He, is, he is not someone that you would say, you should emulate your life after this person. Right? Judah is not one of these individuals at all. And as we go into chapter 38 and you start to see this chapter unfold, it really only confirms everything that we've already begun to see in chapter 37. Right? As, as we look here in chapter 38 and verse 1, uh, the first thing that we see is, is Judah's choice for a wife. Okay? It's, this is significant. Uh, we see Judah leaving the rest of his family. You see there in verse 1 that Judah departed from his brothers and he begins to stay with a Canaanite man, right? Hira. Right, uh, the Dolomites were, were fairly uh, close by to, to where the brothers would have been staying around this point in time, uh, there in that southern portion of Judah. And for some reason, Judah departs from the rest of the family and kind of splits off and goes off on his own. And as he does this, not only is he spending time with the, the Canaanites that are there in the land, but he picks up a Canaanite wife along the way. Now that should that should make us think about things for a minute because we've seen this play out so far in Genesis, and so far it hasn't been good when this has come about. Uh, when Abraham is, is thinking about getting a wife uh, for his son Isaac, he tells his servant, make sure that you do not get a Canaanite woman. Go, go back to our family, back to where we came from, pull someone back from there, but do not marry, let my son marry someone from this, from this area. Do not let him marry a Canaanite. Uh, we have seen that when, when Jacob and Esau, and, and, and as a situation is devolving there and, and Jacob steals that birthright, uh, Isaac and Rebekah are grieved because of Esau's choice in wives. Esau has been choosing uh, wives from there nearby. He's been choosing Canaanite wives. And they, and they were grievous uh, to, to Isaac and to Rebekah both. And so as, as Rebekah is trying to get Jacob off to safety, she uses, and, and part of it is sincere, uh, the ruse of saying, you need to go back and get a wife from back from where we came from. Don't, do not get one of these Canaanite wives. And so, so far, the only person that we have seen out of the family that has gotten a Canaanite wife has been Esau, and Esau has been written off. Esau is not a child of promise. Esau is someone who is conducting himself in a way that reflects a lack of faith in what God is going to do in the future, a lack of faith in the the promises that God has given to, to Abraham and to Isaac. And as we look at Judah here and we see his choice of a wife, you have to start to wonder, where's Judah's heart at? Where is, where is Judah's mind at at this point in time? He's choosing someone, he's choosing some, to marry someone that he really has no business doing, marrying at all. 
He's hanging out with individuals that he really has no business hanging out with at all. You begin to question what exactly is going on in Judah's mind. He is leaving the rest of the family. He's going off on his own. And he seems to simply be assimilating into the people that are around him. Right? There's no distinction. There is, there is no difference between him and any of the, the others in, the, in this land, even though God has made it clear that this family is going to inherit all of that land and dispossess everyone that's in this land. And so Judah's choice of a wife uh, begins to raise a red flag. We begin to say, is that, is that really a wise choice, Judah? Is that, is that the best thing that you could do? And the answer is, is probably no. He marries this woman, and we see that he has three children with her right? All boys. He has Ur, he has Onan, and he has Shua there, right? These are, these are all three of his sons that he has with this Canaanite woman. Now, if the picture of Judah was not good, and it's not, right? We, we see that he is he's cold. We see that he is bloodthirsty. Uh, we begin to see that his children reflect much the same, which again makes us look at Judah's character and say, What's going on here? What is he, what is he teaching these children? What, uh, what, is, what is going on in this family? It's not, it's not going well. You see in verse 6, in verse 7 rather, uh, that Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Uh, the author of Genesis does not tell us what it is that Ur has done. It does not tell us what it is about Ur that has caused God to be angry with him. But God is exceptionally angry with Ur. Uh, God is doing something to Ur that we've not seen done before. Uh, God is going down and killing just one man. Now, we have seen God wipe out most of the earth with a flood. We have seen God wipe out towns, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities that were around there because of their evil and because of their wickedness. But never before in Genesis, never before in Scripture, have we seen God become so angry with one individual that he comes down and kills him, right? But Ur, Judah's firstborn son, meets that qualification. Whatever it is that Ur has done, whatever, whatever kind of man it is that Ur is, God is, is angry enough, God, is, God is revol- is, um, finds it revolting enough that he comes down and he kills Judah's firstborn son. Now, he doesn't kill Judah, so you cannot blame Judah for, for whatever it is that Ur is doing. Everyone is bearing their own sins. But it begs the question, what exactly is Judah doing or not doing? Because his son is clearly not someone who has any kind of character. His son is not someone who has any sort of righteousness or any sort of fear of God whatsoever in his life. He's dead, right? And he's dead because he's angered God so much because he is such a wicked individual. Now, this begins really the complications of the rest of the chapter. Because in verse 6, when one of the things that Judah did for his firstborn son was get him a wife. And you'll notice... That her, that she is, uh, her name is Tamar, there in verse 6. And from everything that we can tell, she's probably a Canaanite as well, right? We don't see that she's coming from the Ishmaelites. We don't see that she's coming from, from any, of the other, uh, any of the other sons. So this is, again, continuing what we have seen out of Judah, right? He has married a Canaanite woman, a questionable decision, right? And now he's continuing that for his sons, right? Getting them a Canaanite woman. And the death of Ur is what kicks everything else off. Um, because Ur no longer has, Ur didn't have any sons, right? He has, no, he has no heir after him. So of Judah's three sons, we now have one son that's completely cut off, and, he, and he's dead. And this is what causes uh, Judah, in verse 8, to look at Onan and say, you have, a, you have a duty to perform, right? You have a responsibility to your older brother, and you need to carry that out. Now, what Judah is referring to here is what we would come to be known as, as a leveret marriage, okay? Uh, you'll see this reflected in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Uh, Moses lays out uh, very strict parameters for what that looks like, and it was a tradition that would have been known at this time as well. It was, it was fairly common in this area. Essentially, the, the concern is that you have a son that has passed away. Uh, he has no heirs. He has no descendants. And if that were to be allowed to, to be as it were, uh, then that son is completely cut off. And so what would, the responsibility would fall to the next oldest son to, to marry the wife of the first son, the one who had died, and to produce a child that would, be, that would actually inherit the name and would inherit the, the same possessions as that brother that had died. Right? It's, it's odd. It wouldn't be something that you and I would, would be practicing today. But at the time, it was, it was, it was fairly customary. Uh, the goal of that is to raise up a son for that older brother so that he's not cut off, 
right? So in essence, what, what Judah is looking at Onan to do is in essence to, to, to come alongside and to raise up a son for Ur. Otherwise, Ur is completely wiped off. Um, Onan obviously understands the responsibility, right? He doesn't, doesn't, we don't see any, any questioning. We don't see any qualms here. Uh, we don't see anything coming out of Tamar as well. So this was probably have, would have been predictable for her as well. This is something that she would have expected to happen, right? Uh, my husband has died. He didn't have any sons. He's supposed to have a son. He needs a son, else he's completely cut off. And so this is, this is considered customary, right? This is, this is the expectation uh, that, is, that is laid down. What we find Onan doing down, though, in verse 9 is, is something else entirely, right? Onan, understanding that the offspring would not be his, we see in verse 9, does everything he can to make sure that there isn't a child, right? And, and you, can, you can read and understand exactly what is going on there, right? He is doing his best to make sure that this child does not come about, okay? Now, there's two possible reasons that, 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 could, be, that could be going on in Onan's mind. The first could be he could be looking at his own inheritance and saying, it is to my disadvantage if there is another son, right? Because this son stands in the place of Ur, that means his father's possessions are going to be split in three as, as a result of that. And Onan may be looking at the situation and saying, it's much better if there's only two of us, right? And so he doesn't want to mess up the inheritance, right? In other words, he's greedy. He's looking to get as much as he possibly can, and he's willing to do it at his brother's expense, right? My brother has died. That's fantastic. That's wonderful. Now there's more for me. In which case, you see Onan following much in the same line as you've seen uh, the coldness of Judah, right? Looking at Joseph saying, I don't care what happens to my brother, right? Sell him. Let's get something out of him. We'll kill him. I don't care. But there's the same coldness that is progressing from father to son where Onan does not care at all what has happened to his brother. He's just fine that he died, right? That's okay. There's just more stuff for me. The other possibility that is going on here is that Onan is, is trying to take advantage of a situation and particularly take advantage of Tamar in this particular situation. The whole goal of, of Leveret marriage was simply to raise up one son, and then it's done. It's over. There's no other relations that are going to be had. Uh, you'll see this later on if you look down in verse uh, 26 in this chapter. Uh, Judah, this is the aftermath of everything that takes place between Judah and Tamar. At the end of verse 26, and he did not have relations with her again, speaking of Tamar. This is what you would expect to happen. Once that child has been conceived, once that child has been birthed, there's no more relations that would take place between the brother-in-law and his, and his sister-in-law. It's done. It's over. That's, that the, 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 the fulfillment has been met. The, everything, everything is finished at that point in time. Uh, if Onan guarantees that there is no child that gets born, then Onan can in essence take advantage of the situation and take advantage of Tamar for as long as he can keep this scheme up. In other words, he's simply looking for more for himself, right? Uh, whichever of the two it is, Onan is acting wickedly. Onan is acting selfishly. Onan is acting in a way that does not reflect any sort of love toward his brother. It does not reflect any sort of love for Tamar. And to be honest, it doesn't really reflect any love toward Judah as well. It's Judah's son that has died. It is Judah who is looking to revive that son's line. And if that son does not have an heir raised up to him, then, then Judah cannot grow and prosper as he would want to. And at this point in time, having children, having heirs is everything. And so really what you see Onan doing is acting as selfishly, as evilly, as greedily, as wickedly as he possibly could, right? And so it should be no... Uh, no um, it should not be a surprise to us in verse 10, although it may come as a surprise to us in verse 10, but it should not be a surprise that we see in verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. God sees what's going on. God knows what's going on. And he looks at the wickedness that Onan is doing, and he says, that's it, I've had enough of you too. And he kills him also. Right? So within the space of, of four verses, we have seen two of Judah's line wiped out just like that. Right now, the problem becomes again that, that Onan is not that old in this situation. Right, uh, Onan also does not have a descendant either. So now we come to a situation where Judah has lost two of his sons, and there is no replacement. There, there is there, there is no one to come in and raise up a child for either of these two individuals. 
And this is what leads us into, uh, into verse 11 here. Uh, Judah makes a decision. Uh, Judah looks at the situations that are taking place, and he basically comes to the decision that probably this is Tamar's fault. That's rich, isn't it? Right? This is Tamar's fault. Uh, he basically is looking at her either as if she is cursed or maybe if she's some kind of a black widow. It's very difficult to say exactly what's running through Judah's mind at this point, but you get the gist of what is going on. He looks at the fact that his two sons have died and says, if I give this woman to Shua, which is the next one in line, what's going to happen? Judah's expectation is Shua's going to die as well. Right? This is simply going to keep taking place. And, and I find that shocking because there is nothing that reflects poorly on Tamar in this story at all. In fact, from everything that you can tell, Tamar is, uh, there's, there's no blemish on her record. She is simply trying to be a wife. Or these husbands keep dying all around her. There's nothing that she has done. It also makes you think that Judah cannot see the evil or the wickedness of his own sons. If you were the father and you could you could be close to your sons and you understood what was going on, then surely you would have looked at Ur's life and said, he, he earned God's judgment, right? He earned God's wrath. He's obviously wicked enough that God is willing to kill him. Something, my son has done this. My son has brought this on himself. But Judah doesn't seem phased by this at all, right? In fact, Judah seems to be unable to see the wickedness of Ur. He seems to be unable to see the wickedness of Onan. And so when he looks for an explanation, he pins it on Tamar and says, it must be her fault. She, she must have done something. There must, be, there must be something wrong with her, and I've got to, I've got to get her out of here, right? I've got, to, I've got to remove her from the situation, or else my son Sheila will die as well. And so Judah takes kind of an unconventional and unorthodox approach there in verse 11. Instead of keeping Tamar off to the side and saying, now you, you wait here, because Sheila obviously is a little, is a little young, Right, um, he, he, We see this mentioned um, in verse 11. Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. Shelah must have been many, kind of young at the time. So there, there may be something reasonable about that part. Right? It's, not, it's not, not quite time for him. Let's give him a couple years and then, and then we'll try something. But he should have just taken Tamar and just take, kind of taken her off to the side. Right? Gave her a tent, sat, sat her next down to everyone else. But, but fine, we're not going to marry her, but we're going to keep her, we're gonna keep her in the family. This is, uh, this is part of the family now. She's a, she's a daughter-in-law. She's been a daughter-in-law twice at this point in time, right? If anyone is family, this woman is family. That's what he should have done. Instead, he takes a rather unorthodox approach and says, you know what? Uh, Sheila is not old enough yet, so we're not going to do the marriage, but what I want you to do is to go back to your father-in-law, back to your father's house, right? What is he doing? He's basically casting her out, is what he's doing. This is, this is unexpected for this time frame. This is, this is not what the social norm would have been. She should have stayed with the family. Keep her to the side, yes. Marry her to the son, maybe not. We'll wait a little bit, fine. But you don't cast her out like this. Uh, this, again, I think really confirms the coldness of Judah's heart. Right? He, is, he cannot see his son's evil. He cannot see what is causing all this. And when it comes to dealing with Tamar, he's perfectly fine with simply casting her off and letting her be someone else's problem. Right? In other words, you're not my problem anymore. I'm casting you out. You have every right to be here. Culturally, you have every right to be here. Societally, you have every right to be here. But I'm going to send you back to live with someone else. I'm casting you out. And it is this that makes Tamar's reactions all the more, um, all the more beautiful in this respect. Because Judah has done everything that he can to act as coldly as, his can, as he can. His sons have done everything they can to act as wickedly as they possibly can. And really, it is Tamar who saves the day in this situation. And this is, what, this is what we're being led up to. Verse 12, we see how this begins to unfold, right? So we've seen Judah's character. It is, it is unappealing. It is wicked. It is cold. It is evil. Uh, verse 12, we see Tamar and her reaction. Verse 12, now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road of Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, but she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore I will send you a young goat from the flock. 
She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? She said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was here by the road to Enum? And they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her, let her keep them, otherwise we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. After some period of time has passed, uh, Tamar understands that things are not going the way that they're meant to be going. And this obviously is a considerable period of time as well. Uh, you'll notice there in verse 12, it calls it out. There is a considerable time um, that, that Shua's wife, the wife of Judah, died. And not only that, but apparently Judah has had enough time not only for Shua to have died, but Judah has had some time to recover from the grieving process, right? He's, he's moved on from, from the situation and from the, from the tragedy that has taken place. Uh, we also notice there in the middle of verse 14 that Sheila had grown up by this point in time. Now, we don't know how old, again, Sheila was uh, when, when these first events were taking place, but apparently by this point in time, enough time has passed that Sheila is old enough, right? He's, he, he's reached that point where it's reasonable that Sheila could be given off in marriage at this point in time, and for some reason, Judah has chosen to do absolutely nothing. And so, Judah lo- so Tamar looks at the situation and says, things are, not, things are not going the way that they're supposed to be going. I should be married off to Sheila at this point in time. And this is where we begin to see the, the, the character of Tamar coming into, coming into focus, right? What is, what is going on in her mind? What, is, what are her motivations? And you see, the first off, she's motivated by this family of hers, right? She's been brought into this family, right? She's been married into this family. And she's also been cast out by this family. And yet, despite having been cast out, despite having been treated as harshly as she possibly could, despite really being even blamed by the family for the death of these two boys, what is she concerned with? She is still concerned with raising up two boys for the two sons that have died of Judah. That is, that is her concern. Even though she has been cast to the side, even though she has been mistreated and coldly mistreated at that, she is still concerned about the welfare of this family that she's been brought into. Right? And that is what is concerning to her. That is what is bothering to her. Her husband that she was married to did not have a son. Her husband is meant to have a son. He is supposed to have a son. Sheila is supposed to be the one who takes on that duty and makes sure that happened. And Judah has not done anything to cause that to happen. And Sheila has not done anything to cause that to happen. And this is one of the primary motivations for, for Tamar at this point in time. I know to our minds, this becomes confusing as we look at this, right? Why is, why is she going about on this? But this, this is the motivation behind what she is doing. As weird as it is, as confusing as it is, that is the motivation. She is concerned about the welfare of a family that has cast her out, right? That is the motivation. That is the concern. And that's what kicks all of this into play, right? As she understands that, that this has not taken place, she really is taking matters into her own, in her own hands to make this come about. And it's curious how she chooses to go about this, is it not? Uh, she hears from, from someone, and there's a lot, of a, a lot of someone talking in this passage, right? Someone is going to tell her that Judah's going up there. Someone is going to tell her that Tamar is pregnant. There's a lot of people talking, apparently, somewhere in the back of this chapter. Uh, but, but Tamar finds out that Judah is going up to shear his sheep. Uh, now, this would have been a big time of the year, okay? This, this would have been big time, right? Uh, you're finally getting a return on, on, on the sheep. Uh, you're getting that wool that is coming in. And so this is going to become a time of rejoicing, right? There's going to be feasting. Uh, there's going to be drinking. And this probably is one of the things that puts Judah in the mood that we possibly find him in in this chapter, right? He's, he's feeling really good about things right now, okay? Things are, things are going well for him. Tamar chooses an approach in order to to snare Judah to accomplish what needs to be done, Uh, which the fact that she decides to dress as a prostitute uh, gives you, again, some indication about how Judah behaves himself, right? If you thought that Judah was a really upstanding, upright man, would you dress as a prostitute to snare him? Chances are not, right? That's probably not what attracts Judah. If you think that Judah is frequenting these kind of places, what do you do? 
You behave exactly as Tamar does. So this chapter, while we're focused, well, this section of the chapter we're focused on Tamar, we're still thinking quite a bit about Judah's character, right? This is, this is not a man who is upstanding. This is not a man who is a good man. This is a man who continues to be as selfish as he possibly can. And he has evidenced this in many different areas of his life. And Tamar knows this. Tamar understands the score. She understands what he is like. And she is doing what she can in order to accomplish what needs to be done. So she dresses herself up. You'll notice there that it's, it's very clear in verse 14. She removed her widow's garments, right? So, so she has been in mourning all of this time. She is a widow, and she has continued to be such, right? She removes her widow's garments, and she puts herself in, in new garments, and she puts a veil over her face, okay? Uh, the veil that is taking place right here is something that would typically be customary for, for a temple prostitute at this point in time. And there's a distinction, and it's, it's odd, again, to, to our sensibility, uh, but there was a difference between simply a prostitute and a temple prostitute. One is, one is more dedicated and more, and more sacred. That's what she is trying to, to emulate here. Another one is a little more run-of-the-mill, if we can use that, right? Again, that is, that is odd, but that is, that is the distinction that is trying to be made here, right? She goes and she puts herself in a situation, in a place where she knows Judah is going to be passing through. She has thought this through. She has, she has contemplated what is going on. And this, this, this plan is being put very carefully in, into, into effect. Judah does exactly what Tamar expects. Right? This, is, this is the kind of man that he is. He is okay with this kind of behavior. He doesn't seem to have been planning on it necessarily. He doesn't have payment ready. Uh, but he is perfectly okay with this kind of behavior. This is, this is acceptable to him. Right? He sees her sitting by the side of the road and says, can I come in? Right? And she says, well, that's going to cost you. Uh, right? And he says, well, I'm not ready for that. What can I, what can I give you in, in place of that? And this is when she asks for these, these pledges of him. And he gives them to her. Uh, you'll see in verse 18, she, she asks for these pledges. Uh, it is a seal and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. Uh, the seal that is being mentioned there is probably some kind of a, of a cylinder uh, that, that he would have carried with him. It's something that if you had, uh, you've seen people when they, they, they stamp things in wax, they have, a, they have a ring. It would have been very similar. You would, have, uh, you would have had put some wax on something. You would have rolled this cylinder out over that, and it would have given some kind of a, uh, some kind of a picture. Some kind of a seal would have, would have taken place there. Enough to where you could identify that it came from this person. Right? It is, this is unique to Judah. Simeon doesn't have this same exact seal. Uh, Levi doesn't have this seal. Uh, Reuben doesn't have this seal. This is something that is distinct to him. His staff and his cords would also have been something that would have been unique to him. It would have distinguished him from anyone else. And, and so what she is doing is she is looking for, for evidence. Right? She, is, she is in essence saying today, uh, give me your driver's license. Give me, give me your credit card. I'll hold on to that, right? And on the back of that driver's license is a photo. On the back of that credit card, maybe a photo and a name, right? Enough to say, this is who this person is, right? Without any, without any doubt, without any hesitation, this is who this person is. That, that's what she's looking for here. She's thinking very far ahead. She's thinking much farther ahead than Judah is at this particular situation, right? And she understands what Judah is about and what he is trying to do. Uh, she conceives uh, in verse, uh, verse uh, 18 there. She conceives after this uh, encounter with, uh, with Judah. And, and, it's, and, and this begins, again, a, another whole round of a situation, right? Uh, Judah uh, has to try to pay her. Uh, he interestingly sends his friend Hira uh, to go do the payment. Uh, it seems as if Judah is okay with uh, visiting the prostitute but doesn't want to be seen again in this particular situation. So trying to, to perhaps cover his tracks or maybe, maybe remove the shame a, a little bit from what's going on here. He sends his friend Hira to go find this woman who is sitting by the side of the road. And guess what? We can't find her. Because is, is Tamar really a temple prostitute? She is not. Right? And, when, and when he comes to begin asking the, the men of the town, where is she? They say, we've never had one here. Right? We don't, there's, none, there's none that sits in that particular place. There, there's, there's no one that answers that description. And it's curious then, in verse 23, after Hira comes back and tells Judah, I can't find her. Right? She doesn't seem to exist. No one in town knows about who this woman is. What is Judah's concern? I don't want to be a laughingstock. I don't mind doing everything that I've done. I don't mind being the person that I am. I just don't want to be, I don't want to be laughed at is <laughs> really, really his concern. He's, he's worried about his own pride. He's worried about his image at this point in time. 
Right? It's enough that we've done what we've done. She has what she's asked for. I tried to send her what, I, what, what, what she had asked for, uh, but if she didn't take it, she doesn't take it. There's, no, there's nothing more that I can do. And Judah is willing to just write it off. Right? This, is, this is fine. This is, this is over. This is done. We've done everything that we possibly can. In the meantime, again, verse 24, people begin to, to talk. And this is where things begin to, to change for us substantially. Let me read verses 24 through, through 30 here. Now it came about after three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, She is much more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not try to give her my son Selah. And he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at that time she was giving birth, and behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One took out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, and who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. This section is where things begin, we begin to see some sort of redemption, right? So far, things have been dark and things have been confusing, right? Judah is clearly an evil man. He is a selfish man. He is a cold man. Tamar is, is motivated by much better motivations. She is concerned with this family. And though she's engaging in behavior and in a, in a plot that is kind of confusing, uh, there at least seems to be good motivation behind what is going on. This is where things begin to come back together, and we begin to see the grace of God coming out finally. Uh, Judah finds out, again, people, there's a lot of people talking behind the scenes in this chapter. Uh, Judah begins to hear that his daughter-in-law is now pregnant, right? Now remember, he has cast his daughter-in-law out, right? He, is, he has sent her back to live with, 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 with her father and, and live in her father's house, something that should not have been done, something that wouldn't have been unorthodox to have done at this point in time. And so you're left with a picture of a man who is perfectly willing to cast his daughter-in-law out, but also perfectly willing to judge her if she behaves in a way that you don't like, right? Uh, this begins to remind us an awful lot of the story later on in the New Testament when Jesus has brought a woman that's caught in adultery, right? And who do we bring? We only bring one party, right? Who's guilty? There's two guilty parties somewhere, right? We have a very similar situation. Judah is not interested in whoever did the sleeping with Tamar, but Judah is interested in Tamar and Tamar only, right? Bring her out and let her be burned. That is a, that is a cruel sentence to try to pass, right? To, to, to burn this woman alive, a woman that you have treated coldly, a woman that you have blamed for the death of your sons, a, a woman that you have cast out and, and, and tried to forget as much as you possibly can, um, but yet we're going to burn her alive for acting in a way that really would have made sense in this particular situation. As Tamar is being brought out, she says, yeah, this might have happened, basically, uh, but look, look and see who the father might be here, right? And this po- at this point, her plan begins to really come to its final fruition. Uh, she brings out the, the, the cord, she brings out the seal, she brings out the staff and says, this person, this is the daddy, and at this point, the dawning begins to break upon Judah. He begins to realize exactly what has taken place. He begins to realize exactly what he has done in this little saga that has gone on here, right? He is the one that's committed this sin. He is the one that has caused the situation to, to be what it is. But notice his response there in verse 26. She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her my son, Sheila. She is more righteous than I. Judah looks at the situation and probably for the first time understands the clarity of what has been going on here all along. Uh, Judah has, has missed the iniquity of his sons, right? Ur gets killed because he is wicked. He, he misses that. Onan gets killed because he is wicked. He's missed that. He has blamed everything on Tamar, sent her away. And yet as now as this situation is becoming clear to him, he begins to realize exactly what it is that Tamar has been about. Tamar has been trying to do exactly what should have been done. Tamar is trying to accomplish what Judah should have been trying to accomplish, which is raising up children uh, for his two dead sons. Tamar has noticed that she was not given to Shelah like she was supposed to have been, which again was Judah's responsibility. Uh, It seems as if here that there is a turning point that takes place in Judah's life. 
That's probably one of the main reasons for this chapter being here, even though it seems to interrupt everything that is about, that is about Joseph. There is something that takes place in Judah's life during this period of time, and many people think this is it. This is what takes Judah from being a selfish individual to being someone who recognizes what these consequences look like and someone who is willing to actually take responsibility for himself. The next time that we see Judah, he will be sitting in front of Joseph and saying, take me instead of one of these other sons. Take me instead. There is something that has got him from the point of saying, let's get rid of Joseph, let's get rid of my father's son, to take me instead of instead of one of my other father's sons. And it seems like it's this passage here. There is something about this passage, there is something about this incident in which the, everything seems to become clear for Judah at some point in time. Uh, this woman that I have treated wrongly, uh, this woman that I have treated coldly, uh, this woman has been more righteous than I. She has been trying to accomplish what is right. She has been trying to do what I should have done. She is taking responsibility in a place where I should have been taking responsibility. She has been more righteous than I. Right? There is something that is taking place in Judah's mind that, that clicks for him uh, for the first time. But that's not all that God is doing here. He's not simply taking Judah and transforming him. He's doing something with Tamar as well. You'll notice there in verse 27 uh, the results of this pregnancy, right? Uh, so Judah and Tamar, they have had relations. Uh, Judah, we notice in verse 26, will not touch her again, which is the right course of action. That was, that was done. The responsibility was finished. It was over. Verse 27, uh, as she came about as she was about to give birth, behold, there were twins in her womb. Twins. Uh, there is probably a good deal of significance in this. Uh, Isaac, when he has sons, he has twins, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Judah, as we are looking at Judah's situation here, we are looking at Judah who is down two sons. These twins that are, that are being born here, in essence, replace both of these sons. Had it not been for these twins that Tamar had, the line of Judah would have been down to one son, Shelah and Shelah alone. There is no way that the line of Judah would have become as fruitful and as bountiful as it was. Years down the road, as you start to look at the tribes and you start to look at the breakdown of those tribes, Judah is a large tribe. Judah has, has many children. His children have many children. But it's because of Tamar here. Tamar is the one that is bearing twins. Were it not for these two twins, Judah's down to one son. It would not have happened the way that it happened. Okay? But there's a second thing that is going on here. Tamar is becoming part of something that is much bigger than herself. Uh, Brian read for us uh, out, of, out, of, out of Ruth. And if you turn with me back to Ruth real quick, because you may have, you may have thought, caught it, you may not have caught it. Uh, if you weren't reading ahead, you wouldn't have thought to catch it anyway. Uh, but if you turn back to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4, God is doing something else in this passage beside simply replacing Judah's line here. God is positioning Tamar in a most unusual way. Ruth chapter 4. If you look in verse 12, this is where the, 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 the people of the village are looking at what is taking place with, with Boaz. They're looking at taking place at what is taking place with, with Ruth, uh, who herself is a Moabitess, again, has, has really no place in this story at all, much as Tamar has no place in this story at all as a Canaanite. Notice the blessing that they give in verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Who do they go back to? They go back to Tamar, right? Tamar was, Tamar was blessed. Tamar produces twins, and Perez was part of this line, right? This is, who, this is whom Tamar has, has given birth to, and, and Boaz is in that line. He is of the line of Judah and sitting squarely there. You'll notice them in verse 18 there, where, where Brian dared to, to go down there, verse 18. These are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was, uh, was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. Tamar is responsible for bearing Perez in verse 18. Um, Rahab, the harlot from Jericho, is responsible for bearing uh, Boaz to Salmon uh, there in verse 21. And Obed uh, is, response, is being born by Ruth, uh, as we saw earlier in this chapter, in chapter 4 of Ruth. In all three situations, God is bringing in Gentile women 
into a line that is, in, that is going to eventually result in the, in, the, in the line of David, right? He is bringing them in in a way that they will have no responsibility to be there, right? Tamar has no, has no right to be in this line. And yet what did God do? He brings her in in a way. Just, it, is her, it is her persistence. It is her attempt at righteousness. It is her attempt at doing what is right that brings her into this line. Rahab continues it, right? As she looks at the situation in Jericho, and what does she see? Jesus is a God who is strong, a God who is powerful, a God who, who, who will bring the rest of these people to her knees. And she, in faith, says, I will betray my people uh, if you will simply make me a, let me be a part of you. And God does that. He brings her in. Ruth, we see the same thing will happen again. A Moabitess, right, has nothing to do with the line of Israel at all. She has every opportunity to leave and not come back. Right, to go back to her people, much, much the way the same opportunity that Tamar had. Right? It would have been easier for Tamar to go find another Canaanite man and just disappear. That would have made sense. She's been cast out. She's been thrown aside. But Tamar and Ruth both make the exact same decision. We will stick with this family that we have brought into, and we will hold our own out of, out of some sort of faith that is taking place in their lives. And all three of these women become part of this line that leads to David, and ultimately a part of a line that leads to Christ, right? What you have here is a story of redemption. You have a story of redemption, a story of grace that has taken place in the middle of a lot of sin, right? In the middle of a lot of confusion, in the middle of a lot of just murkiness of what is going on here. And yet what you see is that God is doing something good in the middle of that. He is building up Judah and establishing Judah to be a tribe that can rule. Out of Judah, he is planning to take David to raise him up and put him on a throne and and cause him to rule over the nation. And to David, he says, I will give you a son one day that will rule over all of this earth, and he will be my son, and I will be his father. These are the father's plans. These are what God has in mind. And he has graciously, in the meantime, brought in Tamar. And he will later bring in Rahab. And he will later bring in Ruth. He will later bring in Bathsheba, who, is, who seems to be an Israelite, uh, but gets brought up in terrible circumstances. But all four of those ladies he brings in and brings them into a story of redemption and does it in a way that reflects what, what, what that redemption will look like. Uh, what is it that Christ is doing for us? Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, because Paul, Paul clarifies exactly what this looks like. And bringing Tamar in, I think, is one of the most beautiful pictures and the most beautiful ways of trying to do it. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read here in verse 11. And we've read this many times, but when we look at the story of Tamar, and as we think about the situation she finds herself, it becomes a very good picture, I think. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and brought down the barrier of the dividing wall by establishing in his flesh the enmity, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the, through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. What Paul is describing here is he's looking at the Gentile believers in Ephesus and saying, you have no part with Israel. Right? You were separated from Israel. You had no part in the circumcision. You had no part in the covenants. You, you were not descendants of Abraham in any way. You are cut off. This is exactly where Tamar was. This is exactly where Rahab was. It's exactly where Ruth was. But Christ has abolished that, that barrier. Right? He has been able to take two and turn them into one. Gentiles and Jews alike, and bring them into one body, bring them into himself, right? This is the work of redemption that God has been planning to do from the very beginning, right? It simply was hidden at this point in time. And yet to see in the line of Christ, to see in the line of David, these Gentile women brought in is a perfect picture of what it was that Christ was coming to do. To take individuals that have nothing to do with this line and to bring them in, to graft them in graciously, 
right? They're unusual circumstances. Despite the sin that is around there, despite the sin of others that are around there, he brings them in in a way that perfectly accomplishes his will and perfectly demonstrates what his will was, to take two and to bring them into one. And this is what Tamar finds herself a part of. This is what Judah finds himself a part of. Are either of these individuals worthy of that? No, they're not. Look at Judah. Look at his, look at his sin. Look at his, look at his wickedness. Look at the coldness with which he has exercised himself, right? He is unfit for this. He is unworthy of this. He could easily have been cut off just as well as Reuben, just as well as Simeon, just as much as Levi. And yet God decides to work a work of grace in Judah's life. Think about Judah's position, right? Two sons down, one son left. And what does God do? He graciously gives two sons back to him, right? It is grace that is being exercised. And then there's Tamar, right? Another person who has nothing to do with this, right? She is outside. She, is, she has every right to go back to her people. She has every right to go marry someone else. But instead, she is dedicated to this family, dedicated to this line. And God rewards her graciously by bringing her in to a line with great honor and with great privilege. Everything that is about this chapter is about grace. Despite the sin Despite the confusion, despite the murkiness that is taking place here, it is simply another example of the grace of God that is able to be exercised despite those things. Despite the drama, despite the sin, God's grace is strong enough to endure through those and accomplishes his will through the middle of those things. Chapter 38 really is a beautiful chapter. It's an ugly chapter, and yet the beauty that comes out of this ugly chapter is only to be ascribed to God and to his glory. And this is part of the beauty of Genesis, to help us to understand who God is, to understand what he is capable of, to understand the forward thinking that he has, being able to look through history and say, this is what I want to accomplish, and this is how I want to accomplish it, and these are the people whom I want to accomplish it through. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we worship. And Genesis 38 makes that clear for us. And so I hope as we reflect on that this afternoon, I hope as you reflect on this throughout the week, right? I hope we've, we've been able to set some of the situation straight. Some of the confusion has been ironed out. But I hope most of all, we have seen the grace of God in action and the redemption that he is accomplishing through these circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you and, and we're in awe. You are a God who is able to accomplish your will despite the, the, the worst efforts of men, despite the worst intentions of men, despite the the sin of men. You are able to accomplish what you want to accomplish and and do it in a way that glorifies you. Father, we look at the grace and the mercy that is being poured out on Judah and on Tamar, both in this situation. Father, we're in awe. Father, we wouldn't want to be in that situation. We probably wouldn't even want to witness the situation. But to see your grace in action is, is a marvelous thing, Father. And I pray, Father, that grace, that redemption that we see helps us to focus more on Christ. Father, the one who is meant to accomplish that redemption, the one who can take two and bring them into one, uh, the one who is sent to to redeem us from our sins, the the sins that afflicted Judah, the sins that that afflicted Tamar that she had to suffer, Father. Uh, Your son has come to, to, to redeem us from those sins and to remove those sins from us. Father, may these pictures that we see, may these stories that we see in Genesis cause us to reflect on that, and may it cause us to worship you for the God that you are and your Son for the redemption that he has brought for us. Father, you are worthy of all that, and I pray that we give it to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.